0: We received a message on Facebook that I wanted to read to you today. She said, I just wanted to thank you for your work. 100% been my answer for help. I've done couples counseling for years and never had this kind of messaging. After 23 years in marriage to a man I adored and used to adore me, I discovered two decades of porn use. Even while I was in breast cancer treatment, this hurts the most. He's a family law attorney. We have an incredible, wonderful life. But I've always felt a void and begged to understand why. I'm a sexual woman but he denied me sex for most of the time and I couldn't understand. It felt like I didn't offer something he wanted. Excuses and excuses are what I hear. Even in 10 years of counseling he had never admitted to the porn and then I discovered it. I'm certain my story is normal but your work is not. Thank you. You are a blessing. Thank you for reaching out to us. I'm so grateful for these messages of support Our stories and our infographics and our articles are circulating around on Instagram and on Facebook. If you follow us there and you share our content, it helps isolated women find us. We really appreciate you tagging and sharing and commenting so women can find us because we're getting this kind of feedback all the time. I just wish I had found you sooner. I went to years of therapy and I never heard anything like this. and This is exactly what I'm experiencing. So thank you to all of you. I'm going to continue my conversation with Valerie Hudson today. She is incredible. If you didn't hear our first conversation, go back to last week's episode, listen to that first, and then catch up with us here. We're just going to jump right in. Let's take another Christian principle that's misapplied in this context the love your enemies and do good to them that despitefully use you. Any more to say about that one? Yeah. I think that this is very
1: much applicable in the case that someone has insulted you or has done some sort of microaggression. But I think when we're talking about abuse and atrocity, these are soul killing types of issues. And I think these are issues that imperil your own salvation. So for example, not to sort of uh, fight scripture with scripture, but let me just give you another scripture from Mark that I think is really, really important. And then I'll give you one from Matthew. In fact, let me give you the shorter one from Matthew first. All right, this is Jesus Christ talking. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee and then won't change his ways, tell it to the church. And if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. All right, and remember that Jews did not have dealings with a heathen man and a publican. This means to put a lot of distance between you and the abusive person. And then here's the one from Mark, which is one of my very favorites. Therefore, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. Or if thy brother offend thee and confess not and forsake not, he shall be cut off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. It is better for thee to enter into life without thy brother than for thee and thy brother to be cast into hell. And again, if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. For he that is thy standard by whom thou walkest, if he become a transgressor, he shall be cut off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell. Therefore, let every man stand or fall by himself, not for another, not trusting another. If thine eye which seeth for thee, him that is appointed to watch over thee, to show thee light, becomes a transgressor and offend thee, pluck him out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. For it is better that thyself should be saved than to be cast into hell with thy brother. This is Christ, our Savior speaking very plainly here. He doesn't want you to travel the road to hell. And if that means cutting off thy hand or cutting off thy foot or plucking out thy eye, which seems very extreme, right, and maybe painful, I don't think
0: that we're really being a disciple of Christ. This leads perfectly into the classic gaslighting or manipulation technique when abusers are being confronted about their abuse and they don't want to take accountability or be honest or humble about the situation or submit to God's will, they begin to say things like, well, if you just loved me, Don't you love me? If you really loved me, you would be patient and you would wait while I got help and I'm going to go to therapy. And, you know, it's just this grooming phase where they act repentant or they act like they love you or whatever it is. They're saying, if you don't allow me this, if you don't kind of tolerate this while I quote unquote get better or while I work on it, then you're not being Christ-like because you don't have unconditional love. So can you talk about that? principle misapplied in this situation. Also, I think the unconditional love idea is misapplied in general in the church. Can you talk about that?
1: Oh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think we've all heard that phrase, unconditional love, but you know what? It doesn't make any appearance in the scriptures at all. And we know that Christian theologian Russell M. Nelson has said, while divine love can be called perfect, infinite, enduring, and universal, it cannot correctly be characterized as unconditional. And that's because, yes, God loves all his sons and daughters and wants them to gain salvation and eternal life and live with him forever. Absolutely. So in that sense, God's love is totally universal. However, it's also true that if you're headed off on the path to hell, that God is not going to be happy about that and is not going to shower um, blessings upon you. And he will withdraw his spirit. And he may even send chastening, punishments to you as well. But that's actually love, isn't it? Because God doesn't actually want you to end up in hell. So he's going to try to show you that this is a terrible, terrible path to be on. Uh, so God's love is universal. But if we're talking about love in terms of loving favor and presence, God's love is definitely conditional. Right? Absolutely conditional. And I think that means that we should emulate that, which is if your abuser says you need to stay with me while I'm going through, you know, this treatment program, you could say, no, that wouldn't be helpful to you because you would be tempted to abuse me. So why don't I remove myself from the situation? You go through the rehab program, bring forth fruits of repentance, and I'll be praying for you the whole time and then sincerely mean it. Sincerely pray and fast for them. But you're not doing anything loving when you allow your abuser access to you so that you can be abused once more. That is not a loving thing to do to this person who is clearly marching towards hell and not heaven.
0: And for those victims who are struggling to love their abuser, I do want to say you don't have to set boundaries from a place of love. (laughs) If you're like, well, I don't feel love for them, so I guess I can't hold this boundary. You know, you can do things from a safety standpoint. So don't let someone manipulate you into thinking the only way you can set a boundary or take a step towards safety is if you're feeling compassion toward your abuser. You don't have to feel compassion or love or anything in order to set a boundary. I've said this in another episode. If you witnessed a crime of a car hijacking, no one on the street next to you would say, oh, don't call the police yet. Do you feel love for that carjacker? Are you doing this from a place of compassion? Because if unless you call the police from a place of compassion, unless you call the police from a place of love, then you shouldn't call the police. No, it's okay. You can just set the boundary. And hopefully in time, you can find it in your heart to love that person. But it's all right if you don't. And remember
1: that God teaches us in a sense what love is like, which is that when there is love and that is accompanied by trust and respect and all of those wonderful things that should be part of love, then that feels like you want to hug the other person, you want to love the other person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But remember that love can also exist in the situation where the person is an abuser, but that means that you are not feeling like you want to hug them. You are not feeling like you want to be with them um, because the loving thing to do is not to hug them and not to be with them. So let's not confuse feeling soft and warm and intimate towards somebody with loving them. I mean, I have children. I don't know if you have children. I have children. For example, if, if one of my children hurts another child, I will say, look, I love you, but you've done something wrong here. And so you are going to have to change. You are going to have to do some restitution here. And then, yeah, we can reestablish that lovey, huggy, everything's okay. But in the moment where I'm saying, look, you're going to have to repent. There's going to be a punishment. You're going to have to make restitution. Can I still say that I love them? Yes. Yes, I can but let's not confuse feeling warm and soft towards someone with loving them because we can do tough love, right? And God does tough love to his children all the time.
0: Real quick before a response, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue, or they try to quote unquote treat both the abuser and the victim in the same setting, which is unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org slash group. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. And now back to our conversation. Well, and when the abuser uses that love word to gaslight or manipulate, they're using it to say, you have to love me in the way I want to be loved. You have to overlook my bad behavior. You have to tolerate my abuse if you're doing something else, you must not love me type of a thing. But victims need to realize that's just abuse. It's not, am I being a good Christian? Am I loving him enough? You know, anything like that, that type of talk is abusive. And that is only meant to manipulate you into tolerating bad behavior. It's not meant to actually like bring you closer together. That's absolutely right. And I'm so glad that you have mentioned
1: that, I think that's another source of confusion is what does love mean Uh, and gaslighting someone into you have to love me the way I want to be loved rather than what love would mean from a spiritual point of view I think is very important.
0: Okay so I have to be honest with you there's a section in your article that I don't know if I disagree with, but I would love to have a discussion with you about it. It's the part that says tips for avoiding dehumanization of the abuser. So before I ask your opinion about it, let me tell you what I've been thinking lately. So there are a lot of scriptures that talk about someone being a child of hell. So we've got Moroni 7, or is it Mormon 7? Anyway, One of those that says they're a child of hell or a child of Satan in Alma 5. It also talks about them being a child of hell. I was talking to a victim and she said, I want to see him as God sees him. He is a child of God. And I said, well, read Alma 5 and Moroni 7, and you'll know that the wicked in this sense of these atrocious acts are seen as children of hell by God. Other points in the scriptures it talks about don't cast your pearls before swine or like a dog to his vomit or like a sow in the mire. And there's sections where Christ or a prophet is calling someone who is wicked by some type of animal name, sort of taking them from being this enlightened person into their actions or causing them to be kind of like an animal, a swine or something like that. So as I read that, I thought, for this woman, she was trying to see him quote unquote as God see him. So she was trying to be forgiving and understanding and patient and stuff like that. And, and in my mind, I thought not necessarily dehumanizing him, but helping her realize that he is wicked and that this wickedness was going to harm her would get her to safety more quickly. And I'm not sure if calling someone wicked is dehumanizing them. But first of all, I don't know if that made any sense, but can we have a discussion about how acknowledging the truth of someone's actions is helpful to victims? You know, I think that's a really good point. I would
1: say again, I think it's just a matter of language. Let me give you, a, for instance, Moroni and his troops would go into battle not exulting, not like, "Oh, we're going to stop them," or you know, they would go into battle mourning. All right, warning that they were going to send so many of the children of God to meet their maker unprepared. Now, did that stop them from going into battle and slaughtering these people? No. <laughs> but did it put them in the right frame of mind to eschew hatred, All right, which I think is is a poison to the soul? So, you know, I don't think that you and I disagree, right? I really don't. I think, again, it's kind of a misunderstanding of what love means. If a Lamanite army is coming to battle you, you know, you can say, gosh, I feel really bad, but I'm about to go kill these people. You know, you can do that. You can really do that. You can, in a sense, not dehumanize them and go fight them. But again, I think we're confusing seeing someone as a child of God with what is the appropriate behavior in a particular instance. I do not think the appropriate behavior in any instance is to hate. I believe that because of my own experience, that I think hate is poisonous to the spirit. Even if you're a righteous person, I think hatred is poisonous to the spirit. And we're reminded by another Christian theologian, Dallin H. Oaks, that only God has the right to make a final judgment. So God can call somebody a child of hell, but I'd feel a little bit on shaky ground calling them a child of hell myself. I would feel no compunction about turning a child of God into the authorities, right? I would feel no compunction about divorcing a child of God who was clearly on the path to hell. But I do think there's a sense in which we must remember their humanity or our own humanity is lost. So let's, again, not confuse love with lovingness, warm, soft, patience, long-suffering kind of thing. That equivalence, I think, is pernicious.
0: Yeah. And I think where I'm coming from with those animal references, right? Like don't cast your pearls before swine or like a dog to his vomit or or references of someone being a child of hell without making that judgment of saying, okay, he's Satan or something like that. Being able to say the fruits of this person's actions right now are dangerous and they're not healthy to me. And I know God does not approve of this type of behavior. I'm going to keep myself safe and I genuinely wish them well. Like, I genuinely hope that they get better. I genuinely hope that they stop this. In the meantime, I'm going to get to safety and hopefully observe from a super safe distance and pray for them and wish them well. I do want women to recognize, though, that in the scriptures it does not say And they were wicked. And so we invited them into our homes and we gave them a bunch of food. We set their therapy appointments and we made sure that we dressed up and wore lipstick. It doesn't say that. It says, and they were wicked and they were cast out. It's not rocket science. It's okay to cast out the fruits of wickedness. And if someone continues to exhibit the fruits of wickedness, then God would like us to cast them out. In fact, like that Alma 5 scripture, he commands us to cast them out. So a lot of women in this situation are really hoping that their abuser can see the light. The only program we recommend for pornography users or other people who are using these types of abusive behaviors is called Center for Peace. It actually addresses these types of behaviors from an abuse perspective and the confrontation that you talked about of a program that actually confronts them about the abuse is the only type of program that we recommend because the others don't seem to really help them understand the abusive behavior. But when women are hoping for a reconciliation and that is different than forgiveness, what are the types of things they need to look for to see if the abuser truly has repented and if he's truly changed? That's
1: brilliant. Yeah. The abuser must fully complete all the steps of repentance sincerely and bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. And some crimes may be so awful that full completion of these requirements probably cannot even occur in this life. So what are some of the things? How would you recognize sincere repentance? Well, I think there's a number of things, right? First of all, a recognition that you've abused. I think many abusers are simply unable to even recognize that they committed any sin or crime and will blame their victims for whatever abuse happened. I think abuse is almost predicated on someone lacking any sense of personal responsibility at all. So absolutely a recognition that one has abused. Secondly, I think sincere remorse. I think great suffering always accompanies a recognition that you have abused someone. But I also know that some abusers can be insincerely remorseful. And so that, I think, is where, you know, being in touch with the spirit helps. If you don't think that that person is sincere, they're probably not. And it would probably be better for you to assume they're not sincere. But yeah, sincere remorse, absolutely. Confession, all right, confessing to civil authorities, confessing to ecclesiastical authorities. If they can't even do that, then it's not sincere repentance. Restitution, that's a big one where abusers will say, just forgive me, I won't do it anymore. But, you know, a sense of restitution, what kind of restitution would help make up for what you've done can you help to repay the victim for what you've taken from them and it's possible that restitution cannot be made in this life you know for murder and so forth we cannot make restitution in this life but the users should be searching for a way to make that restitution and then lastly true change A repentant abuser is not going to be slipping back into abuse again. And if they do and insist that you forgive them all over again, I think you're dealing with a case of recidivism where the abuser has not sincerely
0: gone through the repentance process. So yeah, those would be some of the signs. Or that repentance process was just a grooming period where they were putting on a show to groom you and there you go again, you've got abuse again. We're going to pause the conversation here again, join Valerie and I next week for the conclusion of this conversation. I'm so grateful for her and excited to have her back on. If this podcast is helpful to you, please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping other women find us. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon and rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on support the BTR podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.